and a uh, professor, uh, teacher down in um, Florida. And he told this story concerning mercy. And I thought it was really good. Uh, he tells this story about um, when he was a teacher and uh, he would require papers and essays and things of that nature, right? And there was one class, and there was this big paper that was due every year for whatever his class was, philosophy or something. And <clears throat> the due date for this paper was pretty well communicated, set in stone, right? This paper was due on X date, and it needs to be done. Well, of course, the day before the due date, the whole class is just moaning and weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Because they want more time to complete this paper. So uh, he hears their cries for mercy and he grants it. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you another week. Another week to complete this paper. Well, another week comes by and the same thing happens. They say, Professor, we need more time. This was too big of an exercise, too, too big. You know, we, so maybe some of them were finished, but, but they needed more time to finish this paper. Well, he said, okay, look, I'll give you a whole month into the semester, right, to get this paper done. And so they all were just overjoyed that they had this much time. They were uh, walking down the hallway and they'd see him. He was the coolest teacher ever because he gave him all this extra time. They'd high five him and, you know, just talk real casual with him. They were so thankful, thought he was just the coolest teacher on campus. Well, of course, what happens? The due date comes again. And <clears throat> one student uh, is coming up to his desk and he asks him about his progress on the paper. And uh, he says, is your paper done? He says, no, I'm going to need some more time, Dr. Scroll. I'm going to need some more time on that. He says, you're going to need more time. How about a zero? And he says, what? That's not fair. You can't do that. That's not fair. He said, oh, you want to talk about fairness now. Now you want to talk about what's supposed to be done. And so this was the conversation that he used, this illustration about what mercy is and how quickly we grow accustomed to it, right? We grow so close to mercy and so comfortable in mercy that we forget what mercy even is. Whereas the Lord were to play by fairness or by justice, we would know nothing of mercy, would we? Today's text is all about mercy, there's a famine in the land. We've been preaching through the book of Genesis, as you well know. Uh, Joseph has been in Egypt for two decades now-ish. Uh, he's been sold as a slave and then uh, made a prisoner, framed uh, for a crime he did not commit. And then suddenly, after all these years, has been made a king. How? Right? He interpreted Pharaoh's dream uh, correctly about a famine that was going to be coming. And he had a plan for how they could store up grain and prepare for the famine. And so Pharaoh liked this plan and uh, made him keeper of all the goods and the food, basically governor, lord of the land. Many different words are used for his title here. Um, but of course, all the nations now are coming to Egypt because they're the only ones that have grain, right? They're the only ones that have food. And wouldn't you have it, wouldn't you know it, right? The people of Israel from the land of Canaan need food. And where do they go but Egypt to get 
this food. That's where they were last week in uh, Genesis chapter 42. Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize Joseph. Uh, He was dressed as an Egyptian, right? And it had been many years. Um, And that last chapter, chapter 42, was largely shaped by guilt and conviction of sin, right? From the very beginning, as the, the father, Jacob, is casting blame on them, that they're not doing anything about this crisis, and then they have to make that long journey back to Egypt where they remember what happened all those years ago. And this constant uh, reminiscent phrase of the one brother who is no more, right, keeps coming back up, and they're remembering their sin. They could not suppress it. They could not bury it, no matter how hard they tried. Well, chapter 43 comes in, right? And just says, mercy, mercy, mercy to all of the guilt of chapter 42. Chapter 42 had a sad, sad ending. Genesis does not have a sad ending. Chapter 43 turns from guilt to grace. Last week, we learned to confess our sins To not live in a state of constant condemnation in the shadow of God's wrath and his judgment. But to know that the work of Christ is finished on the cross. This week, chapter 43 gives an alternative of how then should we live. We are called to live in the tender mercy of God in spite of our sin and our failings. We are called to live in the tender mercy of God, God Almighty in spite of our sins and our failings. Romans 5, verse 2, Through Him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He goes on, Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's trespass, it's Adam, right? Death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the story of salvation given through the book of Romans is a a, a gift of grace and mercy that we now live in. We stand on it. It reigns over our lives, not sin and death and judgment. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 43. There's three outlining Phrases that sort of uh, show us mercy the whole way through. The first one is send the boy. Send the boy. If we just work our way back through the text, verse 1 says that the, the famine was severe in the land. We don't know how much time has passed from Genesis 42 to Genesis 43, but it probably wasn't that long. There's still a famine going on. They've run out of food. They need to go back. And Simeon was still there. So they really probably didn't want to wait too long, I hope, because Simeon's a prisoner over in Egypt, and they don't know what's happening to him there, right? Uh, Well, verse uh, 3, Judah kind of takes over as spokesperson. Reuben talked a lot in the last chapter. Now Judah kind of takes over the microphone. He starts talking. Um, And you remember in chapter 37, Judah was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph. This was Judah's idea. And so maybe Judah feels more responsible than the rest of the brothers. Um, If anybody's looking for an opportunity to better their reputation after what happened, it would be Judah. All of them had sin. In the, in, the, uh, in the act of uh, what happened to Joseph. But, um, and, and by the way, Judah doesn't have the best reputation. Chapter 38, the whole Tamar incident, right? Do we need to revisit that? 
Um, so if anybody wants to make things right, it would probably be Judah. He starts talking a little bit more in this chapter. Um, Judah knows, though, that he can't return to Egypt without Benjamin. The man, as they call him here, the man, <laughs> made it clear that they could not return and see him without Benjamin with them, their youngest brother. So they explain this to Jacob. Jacob is still refusing to send Benjamin. He's like, no way, no how. I cannot lose Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph, right? He, uh, he said, if, if Benjamin dies, my gray hairs would go down to Sheol, weeping and mourning, right? Um, but they, they explain. They said, listen, he asked us about our family, the man. And specifically, he asked about you, about whether or not you are still alive, whether or not you're doing well, which gives us a clue to who this man is, doesn't it? And that's all going to come to fruition when he finally gets to meet his father again. So Judah says, here's what we have to do. Send the boy that we might live and not die. Send the boy. Judah pledges his safety. He says, if anything happens to Joseph, I will personally accept the blame Forever, eternally. It's almost a substitution, right? I will take the, 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 the judgment, the sin, whatever that happens to Benjamin eternally. Well, in verse 11, <clears throat> Jacob concedes. Uh, he, he basically says, if that's what must be done, then do this. He kind of comes up with a three-step plan. Um, and it's really a tough situation to be in. Maybe you've been in that situation Almost a lesser of two evils here, right? Because either um, they all starve to death is one option, or he sends Benjamin and might lose him and be bereaved of his children. He has to make a choice. He, 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 as hard as it is, he allows Benjamin to go, and he does three things. First, he says, you guys need to bring a whole bunch of presents. Y'all like pistachios? I like pistachios. They bring the pistachio nuts, the almonds, the gum, the myrrh, the balm. Bring all that stuff and make sure you, you prepare it. Get a you know, nice saran wrap gift, gift bag. You know, um, Get one of those straw baskets. Make it look pretty. And, and make sure you also bring double the money. Uh, remember, the money was put back in their sacks. So bring double that. To make sure they, they, they know you're, you're wanting to repay everything that was given back to you. Uh, and by the way, in chapter 37, when Joseph was sold, they saw Ishmaelite traders, sojourners, carrying with them balm, gum, and myrrh. So now here they are traveling with these things on the same route where Joseph was sold, feeling the weight of that. The second thing Jacob does, though, is he prays. Verse 14, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother Benjamin, which is really, really important. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Jacob prays. The third thing he does is basically in verse 14 at the end of it, he, he submits his life to God's will. He says, If I'm bereaved of children, I'm bereaved of children, right? Very Esther-like. I'm going to go in before the king. If I die, I die. He's, he's giving up his will to the Lord. Whatever happens, happens. So they take the gifts, they take the money, they take Benjamin, and they go to Egypt. And that first clue of mercy is found in Jacob's prayer in verse 14. He prays to the God of his fathers, only rarely referred to as El Shaddai. El Shaddai. We've already seen this in the patriarch's prayers before, right? But what does El Shaddai mean? 
God Almighty. God Almighty. The Almighty One, all-powerful, sovereign, the One whose will is totally unstoppable, the Almighty One who can do literally anything. Jacob prays to El Shaddai. And he could have prayed to El Shaddai for nine plagues to come down on Egypt. Right? He could have prayed to El Shaddai for rain and food that would sprout up in their land, and he probably did. He could have prayed for the Almighty to just snap his fingers and fix everything in an instant. But instead, what does he ask for from El Shaddai? Mercy. He asks for mercy. To the all-powerful one who can do anything, who owns the universe, upholds the universe by the power of his word, he prays for mercy. It is wonderful to know the true God who has no competitors, who dwells in the heavens and does all that he pleases. We teach our children, my God is so big, my God is so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. But what does that mean? We pray for the Lord to do extraordinary things, amen? Right? Because he can. But perhaps the most extraordinary thing God has done for us has become far too little in our prideful hearts. The Almighty has indeed done the impossible. What has he done? He has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus said, what's harder, right? Heal the man or forgive his sins. Jesus did both. Forgiving sin implies power. Okay? El Shaddai gives mercy. He is qualified to do so. Every other religion in the world tells you how to get your sins taken care of by a series of works. Right? What does Christianity claim? Our El Shaddai, our all-powerful one. We say, no, no. He alone takes care of sins. We don't do anything to get our sins taken care of. That's because all the gods of every other religion are powerless. They are not almighty. They cannot forgive sins. They do not give mercy. Those who make them become like them. Right? Our God has the power to forgive sins without us lifting a single finger. Our God has the power to come to earth himself, to do the good works for us, and then bear our penalty on a cross and die our death as our substitute, take our blame, take our sin on himself, take God's wrath on himself, and then rise from the dead so that you and I can be forgiven. And then he treats us like we've never sinned a single day in our life. Little did Jacob know he was praying for the powerful mercy of God on some of the biggest sinners this side of the Canaan land. All right? Folks who had been bearing the weight of their guilt and shame for years and years and years and years and years. And a prayer for mercy is exactly what they needed. Mercy is what God specializes in. When we pray, we should pray for mercy. And then we should expect God to be merciful. Right? Because this is... El Shaddai. This is what he does. Every single one of us should be able to stand up right now and give a list as long as the days of our lives for how God has been merciful to us. 
Because His mercies are new every single morning. They're never exhausted. He just gives more and more and more to us. Our sin is no match for His mercy. Right? In fact, Jesus, gentle and lowly, loves giving mercy to sinners. He sees the sheep scattered abroad without a shepherd and He has compassion. That word is mercy, love, concern. He gets pleasure in giving us mercy. We are not a disgusting germ in his sight that he feels obligated to clean up like a bottle of Clorox. He sees us as loved. He wants to forgive your sins. Do you know that? Jesus wants to forgive your sins. He has a storehouse of mercy that never runs out. If we think we have sinned a sin that can outdo God's mercy, we don't know El Shaddai, right? The Almighty One, the one whose power and mercy is unexhaustible. And doesn't this help in the Great Commission, right? I know some pretty big sinners, and you probably do too. And we can pray for God's mercy. And we should expect God to be merciful. There's a... a, Story of a, a man who was running from God. All of his family and friends wouldn't stop evangelizing him and pursuing him. So he went as far as he could. He went to New Zealand. And he only knew one person in New Zealand. Didn't know him well. But this person picks him up from the airport in New Zealand thinking he's finally getting away from all this religious talk. And he gets in the car from the airport. And the first thing the dude says is, so are you a Christian? We can't outrun the mercy of God. When he's tracking us down. God can and does forgive sins. Now Joseph, the king, right? He would have every right to execute his brothers for this personal crime and their sin. Or at least imprison them, right? For what they've done. But when they stand before this king, they receive unmeasurable mercy. The next phrase that outlines mercy for us is bring them in. Bring them in. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. Uh, So Joseph saw Benjamin, right? Probably like through a window or something. It doesn't seem like they see Joseph yet. He's inside. They're outside approaching his place and to just jump the gun a little bit here, right? You have to. He sees Benjamin. And why does Joseph allow the brothers in? Because of Benjamin. Wasn't that the rule, right? That was, that was, how, that was the deal. You come back with Benjamin, I'll let you in, right? We can work out something. But you have to come back with Benjamin. Brothers and sisters, Why does the Father allow us into His presence? Some of y'all are whispering, right? Because our good brother, Christ, is with us, right? We approach knowing Christ is with us and He would not accept us if it were not for Christ. But He sees Christ and He covers us completely and welcomes us in His presence. Clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, the Father says, bring them in. Bring them in. They can come here, right? And Joseph doesn't just bring them in. He says to his steward, go slaughter an animal, make a feast. We're going to dine. High noon. Get the tables ready. 
We're going to eat. These men aren't just granted access. They are going to eat at his table like they belong there. Verse 18, though, the men were afraid because they they were brought in and they said, it's because of the money that was replaced in our sacks, right? He's brought us in to assault us. This is an ambush. You know, he he planted the money. He's trying to do, it's a booby trap. He's trying to do something to us here. He's going to beat us. He's going to imprison us, make us slaves. They were afraid. So they quickly explained to the steward what happened here. They say in verse 21, listen, the money was just there. We don't know who put it there. The money was just there. So listen, we've brought it back plus more. We're going to buy more food. We've doubled it. Okay, our hands are clean. We don't know where this came from. They're freaking out a little bit. What does the steward say in verse 23? Verse 23, the steward said, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. You don't know where that money come from? Let me tell you, your God put it there. And by the way, Hebrew steward begins by saying shalom and greets them by the God of their fathers, the Hebrew God, right? This is like miraculous. <laughs> how, how does this guy even know uh, who their God is or um, you know, wh- where they've come from? Um, this is itself a symbol of mercy, mercy, an offering of peace at the door of their house. He references their God. He references the God of their fathers. Um, this was Jacob's prayer being answered. They are greeted with mercy as soon as they get there. And then what happens? Simeon is brought out and joins them. They had water. They get their feet washed and then get food for the donkeys. And they heard through the grapevine that they were going to have bread together, right? That's an understatement. They heard through the grapevine they were going to have bread, so they got the gift ready, right? They started putting the bow on the package and getting the uh, little gift basket together. Well, verse 27, Joseph comes in, right? So we've already got the steward who says, peace to you. And Joseph comes in in verse 27 and inquired about their welfare. Same word, shalom, peace. Inquired about their shalom. And then what does he say? Is your father well? Peace, shalom. Is your father shalom? And the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Um, <clears throat> again, this, this word shalom keeps coming back up over and over and over again. And they're fearful. They're bowing before Joseph, even though he's saying, you know, peace. Um, <clears throat> asking about their welfare, about their father's welfare. And while they're bowing before him, Joseph looks over and he sees Benjamin, that one dude who wasn't there before, the youngest one, right? He says, is this, is this him? Is this, is this the one? And in verse 29, he says, to Benjamin, God, be gracious to you, my son. He speaks with affection, meeting for the first time his full-blooded little brother, who died, or uh, who was born the day of his mother's death. And that word gracious can also be translated merciful, favorable. He says, peace, peace, mercy, peace, peace, mercy. And then in verse 30, Joseph gets all worked up after meeting uh, Joseph. 
Uh, he gets like me after singing one or two uh, really good hymns. He has to go find a place to hide. And he cries in his chambers. He weeps there. He can't control himself. He breaks character. He goes cry, goes and cries for a bit. His compassion grew warm is what the text says. And you know what that word compassion means? It means mercy. <laughs> his mercy bubbled up out of his heart for Benjamin and for his brothers. So he flees to go cry his eyes out. And then he comes back controlled. But what we see in just those seven verses, 23 to 30, are peace, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. Peace, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. This is how the sinners are greeted before the king. They know they don't belong there. They feel guilty. And yet they are welcomed in as family. Beloved, one key aspect to understanding mercy is realizing that it is totally undeserved. Totally undeserved. True Christ-like mercy has the connotation of being welcomed into a place that you should not be. You don't belong here. You're not worthy to be there. It's getting a seat at a table that you are not allowed to eat at. And this is what Jesus has done. This is what Christ has done for us, right? Ephesians. Once we were strangers, aliens, foreigners to God, having no hope and living without God in the world, were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, but God being rich in what? Somebody say it. Mercy. God being rich in mercy sent his son even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. And then what did he do? He seated us with him in the heavenly places to reign with him forever. He saved us by grace and made a people of his own possession. Right? This is good news. We belong to him and we don't deserve to. There's no way we could have just walked up in Jesus' house because of our sin, the wrath that was on us. The Bible has a word for us. You know what it is? Gentiles. Gentiles. We usually skip over that and think we're not one of those. We are Gentiles. We're not Jews, are we? We're Gentiles. The message of the gospel has made a way for people who did not know Christ, who were under his wrath, to come and be grafted into his kingdom, right? So then there is no longer two men, two men, but one man has come. No longer Jew or Gentile, but we are one in Christ. Understanding who we are as Gentiles is key to understanding the mercy of the gospel. We did not belong, could have never belonged, had it not been for the work of the cross. Do you want to experience the mercy of God? Look at where you are in Christ and how undeserved you are to be there. That's how you experience the mercy of God. By the way, this is also key in understanding how we treat one another with mercy, isn't it? I told Stephen I've got a really good idea for our small groups, right? Here's what it is. If you want our small groups to really jump up a few notches real fast, here's what we do. 
Next small group, everyone shares the worst thing they've ever done. What's the worst thing you've ever done? Tell everybody. See, the problem is when we interact with one another, we act like we don't need mercy. And therefore, we don't give it either. We expect everybody to be on their up and up, clean and polished on the outside. We hide our flaws. We pretend like we belong. We've always belonged. And it's that kind of attitude that also keeps people who actually want mercy from coming in and enjoying fellowship. None of us will be able to give or receive mercy until we live transparently with one another. This is the key to actually loving the church is that you know you didn't belong and they didn't belong. Nobody here belonged. We all were under wrath. We all were in sin. We all got the same grace. We all got the same mercy. And we all got a seat at the table, not because of anything we did, but because of the same Lord, one Jesus, one one baptism, one faith, one Lord, only Christ, only El Shaddai. It's a good old hymn. I'll read the lyrics for you. That ought to be our posture when we understand mercy and the goodness of Jesus' church. How sweet and awesome is this place. With Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas that same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We were strangers. May we all say of Main Street, because of our merciful God, who has taught us how to be merciful to one another, how sweet and awesome is this place. How sweet and awesome is Main Street. Because we know mercy. Last one. Serve the food. Serve the food. Verse 31. Joseph comes back. He's controlling himself. He's trying to hide the tears. He says, serve the food. Serve the food. And they had to sort of eat separately. There were some uh, obstacles they had to work through. But imagine the hungry, hungry Hebrews famished from the famine and the travel of going all the way to Egypt and the fear that was overcoming them. They sit down and they are treated like kings. Whatever kind of Egyptian animal, I don't know. Hope, <laughs> hope they like goat. Whatever kind of animal it was. They, uh, they ate it, and they were happy. They weren't thinking about whether or not they liked the Egyptian spices. They were eating. But there were some obstacles, because they could not eat together. Joseph was served by himself. He's king, right? He has to be separate. And then the other Egyptians eat by themselves as lower servants. And then the Hebrews have to eat by themselves, because it's an abomination for the Hebrews and the Egyptians to eat Together, But Joseph did two things to really get his point across when he served the food. First, the text says he lined them up from oldest to youngest. Eleven brothers. 
there was a one out of 39,000 chances that he would have lined them up oldest to youngest by arbitrary placement. He knew their ages. And they stood and looked at one another in amazement from oldest to youngest. Each one had his chair welcomed at the table like they were family, oldest to youngest. Second thing he does is he gives Benjamin five times as much as anybody else, right? Here's a little kid who was also the favorite one, spoiled, right? He's wanting, where's the chicken tenders at? Um, But he gets five portions more than anybody else. And, you know, some commentators say that he was giving a test. How would they respond to partiality after, you know, he had the code of many colors and all that stuff? Were they going to be really upset that Benjamin was now being treated with such um, favoritism? Uh, But mostly, I think this was coming from a heart that was bubbling over with compassion, like we saw when he had to run away because he was so moved after seeing Benjamin. And then the text ends in verse 34, saying they drank and were merry with him. They drank and were merry with him. In other words, their fear turned to joy. They were no longer scared of the man. No longer did they expect to be whisked away in judgment. But they ate and they drank happily, relaxed, joyfully. In his house, they felt the genuine peace and the mercy and compassion that this king was giving. So how should we then live? We've received far more than a nice dinner, haven't we? Haven't we? Where are the Christians at? We have received a sure and great salvation. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have received all the promises of God, finding their yes and their amen in Jesus. We have an inheritance undefiled, waiting for us in the heavenly places. So we are called to rest and be happy in the mercy of God. Rest in His mercy. Now we don't presume on the mercy of God to live a life of wanton sin and banking on Him just being merciful because that's who He is, but rather we bask in a joyful state of peace knowing we have mercy with God no matter what happens. That's what it means to rest in the mercy of God. That means if World War III begins, we have peace with God. If the worst thing that we can possibly imagine happens, God is just as rich in mercy as the day he was when he made you alive. We should live lives happily resting on the mercy of El Shaddai. I heard a new song a couple weeks ago. There's one lyric in there that has really caught my attention and I can't stop thinking about it. I told Mariana to put it on my tombstone. If I die, that's how much it's gripped me. Hold her to it, right? Uh, But here's, here's what it says. Be still and remember the worst that may come but shortens our journey and hastens us home. 
Be still and remember the worst that may come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. That's what it's like to live in the mercy of God. To know that there's no condemnation now that we dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him, our living head. Clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I invite you, brother or sister, to come and rest in the mercy of Jesus today. Don't delay another moment. How marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love. Let's rest in it together. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.